0: Kowalski. The sun is down, the streetlights are on, and you're listening to Largely the Truth with Brennan Store. To all you restless sleepers and midnight creepers, bleary-eyed truckers at the graveyard shift. This is Brennan Store, and you're listening to Largely the Truth. Whether you're staring at a screen or the lines on the road, all is well. And for the next little while, it's going to stay that way. Because I'm here, you're there. And together, we're going to explore the night. Welcome back to Largely the Truth. I am your host, Brennan Store, and this is the internet's favorite podcast. The internet just doesn't know it yet. How you doing, folks? It is good to be back. I always look forward to spending time with you, to bringing you conversations that uh, open up your world just a little bit and introduce you to some cool people that maybe you might not otherwise have met. It is March. That means for most of us, Christmas is but a memory. But what if it wasn't? What if you could have all the good parts of Christmas year-round? Well, for my guest on this episode of Largely the Truth, that is a reality. Glenn Warren is the host of the Season's Eatings podcast on the Christmas Podcast Network. And on every episode of Season's Eatings, which is published year-round, Glenn uses his love of Christmas and his enthusiasm for the history of food to bring you a detailed dive into the origins of a different holiday food. This one's great for all you history nerds, food buffs, and Christmas enthusiasts, and uh, I didn't realize I was a Christmas enthusiast until I started listening to Seasons Eatings, but I most assuredly am. So, Glenn and I had a fantastic conversation, I really think you're going to enjoy it. But before we get there, just a reminder, you can come find us on the Repod app. That's available in both the Google Play and iOS stores. I post every episode there, and if you want to come ask questions or just shoot the breeze, that's where you can find me. Finally, and I gotta get this done because they are doing some construction outside of my goddamn apartment building, and it is loud. If you want ad-free episodes and access to bonus content when available, including the odd music show, head on over to Patreon.com/largelythetruth. And for two dollars a month, you get all those things. That's right, two dollars a month over at Patreon.com/largelythetruth gets you ad-free episodes, bonus content when available, and sometimes entire other episodes, including a music show. One of which I published in January, I believe. It's a two-hour-long independent music show. So, all of that is available over at Patreon.com/largelythetruth. And with that housekeeping out of the way, and before this construction gets any louder, <laughs> we're going to sit back, relax, and reach out to Glenn Warren, host of the Seasons Eatings podcast. My guest tonight is Glenn Warren, host of the Seasons Eatings podcast on the Christmas Podcast Network. Seasons Eatings explores the origins of your favorite Christmas treats from pumpkin pie to pfeffernosa and from malva pudding to mellow macarona. Those of you who know me, you know how much I love food and so I have been very much looking forward to this conversation. Glenn, welcome to Largely the Truth. Thanks for having me. Oh, My pleasure. Again, I, uh, I, I've been listening and like I told you off air, I have so many food allergies that I can't enjoy most of the things you talk about on the show anymore. But my family used to run a specialty grocery store back in Revelstoke, my hometown, and from 2000 to 2006 and we sold all these things. We were the only place in town where you could get fefernosa or lechoken <laughs> or uh stollen, you know. And so it, it just it's it takes me right back to right back to that right 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 back to the boxes of panettone every Christmas. Oh yes. I mean, if you it sounds like your family has some German heritage. We don't actually, we're all Italian, oh, okay. but th- we had a lot of Germans <laughs> in town who were asking for stuff. And so that's kind of what we trended towards. We, we found that a lot of the Italian old customers for that kind of stuff, they would do big orders from these stores on the coast. Yeah. And then they would just truck it all back, you know, with, with one family. Cause it, otherwise you know, they didn't want to have to pay our markup. It was a, a, a point oh, of some yeah, contention with the Italian families.
1: <laughs> That's what I like about all the all the great foods that are available during the holidays is there's, there's such a variety that you could, like, I'm finding out that you can actually talk about something new every week and not even cover, like, the minimum of what Christmas is about for food-wise.
0: That's what I really found amazing when I started listening to Seasons Eatings because I'm when I first heard about the concept of the show, I thought, well, how many can there be? Possibly. <laughs> but then, you know, again, having listened to several shows now, I'm like, oh, yeah, holy shit, there is a ton of these. And each one of them has so many uh, different components, which you go into. And I really enjoy that, the sort of the research aspect of the show. You know, you did, you did a show on the Christmas green bean casserole.
1: I know, that's a huge thing in America. Like I've tried green bean casserole, I'm not a big fan. Um, no. I find the beans to be like slimy and a little sort of squeaky against my teeth. So that's just a little <laughs> food texture thing that I just can't get over. But yeah, it's like, holy cow. And it's not, I mean, it's mostly a recent phenomenon. It's only been the last, what, 70 years or so that it was created because it's created by a lady from the uh, Campbell Soup Company. But it's funny how these sort of foods that you think have been around forever, some have, obviously, like panatone has right. been around for centuries and and uh, levkuchen and, and other like rice pudding and all that stuff. But some are relatively new. So it's, that's the great thing about. Uh, Christmas traditions is that you can make them your own by just creating what you like and sort of blending those old or traditions together. And so,
0: before we really dive into specific examples, I just wanted to talk about something that your show also put me onto, which is the existence of Christmas podcasts. I did not know that was a thing, and listening to your Christmas episode where you talked about some Canadian foods, which I love because obviously I live just south of Nanaimo where yes. the Nanaimo bar was born. And <laughs> it is absolutely the most interesting thing about that city. <laughs> Sorry, Nanaimo, you know, it's true. But, uh, you had a, a different shout out ads from different, you had ads from different shows on the network, kind of just saying Merry Christmas from us. And I was sh- genuinely shocked at how many Christmas shows there were. And I, that's really very cool. How
1: did you come to discover this? Uh, I listened to a few of uh, Christmas podcasts, probably I started now probably three or four years ago when I was just, you know, bored and podcasting was still not as popular as it is now. It's like it seemed to explode in the last two or three years. Oh yeah. And I'm part of a um, Christmas group all around 365, 24 seven Christmas group called mymerrychristmas.com. Okay. And it's a forum group, so it's very old school. You go in, you type in your little forum chats, and you you know post pictures of Christmas that you like. And but in the forum group, um, there's topics of anything you could talk about. Uh, if you love Christmas, there's a, a forum group for movies, for books, for decorating, for food, for anything you want. Um, and just you know the usual and that community supports and and the holiday and we were just a big happy little family because we love the season so much and that forum does a podcast called my my merry christmas and so i started listening to them actually jeff jeff he's the host of the my merry christmas and the creator of the mymerrychristmas.com site and then he had other guests from different Christmas podcasts on his show. Then eventually I start searching in my podcast app and I find there's maybe like a handful at the time. This was four or five years ago. And one of them said, we're part of the Christmas podcast network. I'm like, what? (laughs) What is that? (laughs) And so I do a little research and there's at least now at least 30 or maybe even 40 different Christmas podcasts out there. And if you listen to a podcast called Christmas Past, um, with Brian Earl, he has on his website, a, um, unofficial, uh, list of Christmas podcasts. Some are still running, some are now defunct and just in library form, I guess. Right. And there are hundreds, literally hundreds of Christmas podcasts. I think the last count he was up to 170. So whatever your niche is, there's someone out there who's going to talk about it. So if your Christmas niche is like collecting ceramic figurines, I'm sure there's a podcast out there for (laughs) someone talking about that. But yeah, so I I, uh, contacted them. We now have our own little uh, Discord family group, and we all share ideas with each other. There's even like a sub-forum group talking about promoting your shows and all that that, stuff like that, right? Right. I mean, it's been great because – when I started this podcast, gosh, two and a half years ago, I knew nothing about podcasting except listening to people on the on my app, right? And so I didn't know about how to edit a show and you know um, what type of microphone I would use. And we could get into all the boring stuff and all the technical stuff, but then I contacted Todd Killian from Christmas Clatter, and he was. Helpful and lovely, and supported my ideas, and he gave me like the little sort of pep talk about starting a podcast because I was all starting off about going, going. No one would want to listen to this. That sort of sure. Um, I understand what's the word for it: uh, imposter syndrome. Oh yeah. You know, you know. I think I don't have enough expertise, and there are still some days I still think I don't have enough expertise about this. In fairness, you're Canadian, and Canada yes. is the home of imposter syndrome. I, I know we're very self de- self-deprecating, yes. um, <laughs> but I mean Todd and and all the other guys were very supportive about my idea, and you know, go for it. What's the worst that you can do? I mean, you're doing something, you're you're creating a pro a product that has your unique spin on it. Absolutely. So if you don't if you don't love what you're doing, then don't do it. But if you love it, someone else will love it. And it
0: seems like that certainly certainly panned out for you.
1: Yeah, I got a great bunch of fans. Again, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and I have a lot of people uh, comment on stuff and give me great ideas for future episodes. so i'm I'm very, very grateful of the people who contact me. And so I have to know uh, why why uh, Christmas food? Where does that come from for you? I trained as a baker back in two thousand and eleven. I was working part-time as a supervisor in a food court in a hospital in Edmonton, Alberta. And I decided just to switch gears. I was was always been in in the food industry ever since I was a kid. Um, I don't know if a few people out there who remember Bonanza. The American counterpart was Ponderosa, so Bonanza was a family-style restaurant. You go in, order, go through the the lineup, order your meat of choice with big potato or fries. You get an all-you-can-eat salad bar and a drink back then in the 80s. Right. For like, you know, $7.99. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not anymore. No, um, times have changed. <laughs> so that was my first job working there. And then I first, I went and worked for a fine dining restaurant as a sous chef. Got tired of the long nights and you know working every holiday, working New Year's Eve, so I decided to get out of that and find sort of a normal time job, even though right. I ended up working for a hospital, which is never closed. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I got my baking certificate from Nate in Edmonton and finally started working for a supermarket because that's what the main training was. But right. while I was in school, basically school was from September through April. It was a one-year baking certificate program. And we had to make all these foods, obviously, to learn how to make them for a commercial bakery. Right. So we were making fruitcake in September. We were making Stollen and Panettone. And all the stuff we make in school got sold at the commissary to all the students. Okay. And while we're making them, I'm going, this is great, but, you know, why? Why do we, I kept thinking, I know how to make it. I know how the science works for the the, the baking and, and, you know, but I always wondered why each culture has these specific foods that they only bring out once a year when nowadays we can get food anytime we want. I mean, literally, I can make a panettone tomorrow if I wanted to. But we only seem to bring it out Christmas and Easter. Why do we do that? And, I, and so I started researching and going, why do we make these foods? And it wasn't because it's only a special time of year. It's because only these foods were available for certain times of the year. Of course. So right. we'd have, you know, you'd have your growing seasons. And unlike now, food is available all the time. You have your growing seasons. You take your stone fruits, you dry them out so they wouldn't go bad over the winter time. Right. Or you cover your fruitcake and your mince meat with cinnamon and nutmeg and cloves to hide the flavor of the semi-rotten fruit that's been <laughs> stored in your oh, larder really? for 3 months. <laughs> <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Or like in the case with uh, stolen the pope put a ban on butter and fat for 200 years. Oh. So and so they wrote, they wrote, they kept writing a letter to the Pope of the, of the times saying, you know, could we at least do it for one time of year? Like one, do it just for the, the religious holidays. And the Pope's like, yeah, okay, fine. And so as just, all the money raised from the butter goes to me. <laughs> Sounds well right.
0: As a Catholic, that, that kind of all fits. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, it, yeah. So that's why things were only made at certain times of the year. And so I I figured if I find this interesting, other people might find it interesting. Absolutely. And I've been to different countries, not very many, but I mean, and I've experienced different cultures, foods, and I meet lots of different cultures from people and they're describing their Christmas meals and their foods. And I'm like, that sounds amazing. I want to try a Filipino Christmas dinner or a Norwegian Christmas dinner. Or because my my heritage is mostly English Irish, and we're not very big on flavor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm married to an English woman. I can confirm. Yes. So you know we don't we like things our spiciest is adding salt.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, a little bit of pepper. We're gonna go crazy.
1: <laughs> and I was raised on that. I was raised on food boiled within into its life, and you know falling apart once you look at it differently. And <laughs> yes. that's about it. So, all these different foods fascinated me, and so I started researching. I started the podcast in, uh, I think, May, uh, two and a half years ago, and slowly but surely, people started listening.
0: Well, as I said, I, I, you know, having listened to it myself, I, I can understand why, because it just, uh, there is so much information, and it's presented in such a, an accessible fashion. And again, like, you know, I knew about the Nanaimo bar, but I had no yes. idea butter tarts were so huge in Canada. Like I, I kind of had heard people talk about it, but especially in what in Eastern Canada. I had no idea that there were butter tart like festivals in Ontario.
1: There's a huge festival in the summer in Ontario. If you go to any small town in Southern Ontario, they will claim to have the best butter tart ever. And you can actually take a small tour that gives you stops along the way to try each town's butter tart. Cholesterol be damned. But- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got to die <laughs> something. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Canada is pretty rich for culture anyway. I mean, we have such a varied myriad of of different cultures here, especially French Canadian. We have tourtière for Christmas. Uh, right. we have like king cakes that's coming from the New Orleans tradition and um, What's a king cake? King cake is a, basically an epiphany cake. So, Epiphany is the basically January 6th to 12 days after Christmas. Right. Where uh, you would take a cake and put a little, nowadays you would put a little plasticine or plastic baby in the cake, and then whoever gets the piece with the baby is considered king of the day. Okay. Back in the, in the old days, they used to put like a bean or a pea, a dried pea, and who would ever get that would be the king of the day. So it's basically like the baby represents the baby Jesus and stuff like that. So. <laughs> Interesting. And I I, yeah. I had no idea that was part of our culture. Yeah. And we have a lot of different cult uh, different cultural things here in Newfoundland where of course being an island in the middle of the Atlantic we are kind of stuck not as much now as we used to be because with today's modern technology the more exposure we get to other cultures and other aspects of people our culture gets diluted. So, oh, okay. Yeah. It's funny because people say with the Newfoundland accent, for example, I digress. I took a a few linguistics courses in school, so I'm going to digress. Sure. Um, Accent change from the mother country because influences always go in and out of the mother country. So once a facet of that country break off from the original accent, it, it mostly stays the same without any influences. Right. So for the longest time, the Newfoundland accent was basically an old English-Irish accent from about 400 years ago until like 100 years ago, where 1950s, 1940s, if you look at old NFB films, National Film Board films, you will get people talking in a very thick Newfoundland accent. And if you connect that to similar people of the time in Ireland and Southern England, they're practically interchangeable. But nowadays, because we have so much back and forth, traveling across borders, traveling across countries, our accent gets diluted. And that's that's not a bad thing. It's just what happens. Right, yeah. And I find that's the same thing with food. So we have different cultures blended together. And so people are being prescriptionists with speech saying you have to say it this way i'm like no no you don't i mean i can put raisins in a butter tart if i want to i can put chocolate chips in a butter tart if i want to it doesn't make it better it doesn't make it it just makes it different right i think that's the great thing about food and culture is that the more we blend it the more interesting it begets it gets absolutely
0: and they're both constantly evolving yeah Uh, so i'm curious i you you mentioned that some things had surprising origins. Was there anything that you started research when you started the show that you afterwards found yourself thinking, oh, I had completely had this wrong. You know, my, my original understanding of this thing was completely off base. I don't know
1: about being wrong. It's just being totally unknown for one. Okay. Um, one of the things I talked with, uh, Craig Kringle from uh weird Christmas, and I'm sorry, I'm just name dropping Christmas podcasts all over the place. That's all right. Um, A <laughs> little cross promotion. Uh we talked about um the proliferation of um spice, basically. Pumpkin spice. You know, in the fall, everything is pumpkin spice. Right. You can get freaking pumpkin spice cereal and lattes and ranch dressing, I think, has pumpkin spice versions in the States. But at hey. this point it wouldn't surprise me. Lip balm <laughs> But we just got to talking about the middle ages and and just I started doing some research on the weird, freaky foods of the Middle Ages because that's when the spices during the the spice trade for the between China and Europe started um, just going nuts. The Dutch basically took over the West Indies. please don't quote me, but I think it's around the fourteen hundreds. And this is one of the weird weird slash. Macabre things that we food historians have to talk about and food researchers is that a lot of this stuff that happens happened in a dark history. There's a lot of slave trade. There's a lot of massacres. There's a lot of I, stuff you wouldn't really want to talk about on a food podcast. <laughs>
0: yeah, fair, fair. <laughs> you know,
1: um, I can't talk about sugar and how it's influenced food in general without talking about. Stealing hundreds of people from Africa to work in the sugar plantations in the West Indies. Of course. So, and I can't talk about the spices of nutmeg and cinnamon and without talking about the Dutch going in and slaughtering the population of these tiny little islands in the West Indies and replacing them with their own slaves.
0: Jesus, I, so, I
1: that one I did not know. Yeah. Unfortunately, I, mean, I don't dwell on stuff like that, but I still have to talk about it. So that's one of the interesting things that I have to sort of broach when I talk about food. Is like, how do I do? I really want to get the like deep and dirty into it, and possibly alienate people, and or do I want to you know spill the spill the truth basically and say you know we like sugar. Because we've enslaved thousands of people. There's a small island off the coast of, oh, I think it's off the coast of India. There's a bunch of monks that they have this huge festival every year. I think it's for nutmeg. I could be wrong. Anyway, but they parade around this tooth that's supposed to be come from one of the original monks on a giant, it's on a little pillow on the top of an elephant. Okay. And... And because one of the European kings said, you know, I want to control the spices because I want the money, um, they said, okay, we'll go to this island, steal the tooth, and then we'll have the power. And so they went off to this island, stole the tooth, and it turned out that the monks heard about what was going to happen, and they switched out the tooth with a, like a, ah, ah, one that wasn't ah. from the monk. <laughs> So they stole some dude's tooth. That's
0: fantastic! <laughs> it's like,
1: yeah, it's awesome. And so it's like a little fu to all the sort of European traders. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, stuff like that I find interesting. And it's just, I just I'm like, how could how could researching about Christmas spices and you know end me end me up at some tooth ceremony? <laughs>
0: <laughs> that, that's the wonderful thing about
1: niche topics, man. You just never know where that's where it's going to take you. Yeah. And so, again, talking about the medieval food, we'd have, because Christmas was such a big festival, it's not, I mean, back in the medieval times, you'd have kings and their courts, and they'd have people visiting for Christmas. And it's not like they show up for a couple days and leave, because Christmas basically runs from Advent, which is the end of November, beginning of December, to Candlemas, which is February 2nd. So, you got people staying for like three months. Oh, man. I mean, I'm like, I'm of the mind like people, friends and relatives are like fish, you throw them out after three days. (laughs) So, (laughs) Yep, getting rid of our spare bedroom, our spare bed was the smartest thing we ever did. (laughs) Exactly. So, we, I mean, you have all these people and, and kings would have to entertain. Hundreds of thousands of people sometimes, because, for example, um, I think it's King Richard II. He had up to ten thousand people in his court for Christmas. Holy man! And so, you know, dignitaries and royal royal people would visit, and so he he'd have to entertain them for this month, two month period, three month period. So the king, the chefs of the time, would have to come up with these elaborate dishes. Just to keep people interested. (laughs) Right, of course. You know, I'm I've got all these dignitaries here. I've got to show them what I can do. I gotta show them what my kitchen can do. So they'd come up with like a thing called a cockatrice where you'd sew a chicken to a pig and like I know you'd set there's one where they Stuff a peacock, cover it with gold foil, and put camphor in its mouth and light it on fire. Okay. <laughs> fire breathing peacock. So these are all written down in like Italian cookbooks from the 14th and 13th centuries. And there's wow. a thing called the form of curry, which is basically um, the first sort of written down cookbook from one of the kings. It could have been Richard II, but I could be wrong, but I could just don't quote me. But it's just all these elaborate recipes that wouldn't exist and we wouldn't know about until someone wrote them down. Like figgy pudding, for example. I mean, figgy pudding was basically how to use up all your meats, nut meats, and dried fruits before they went bad. So you just you know shove them into a bag with some flour and some spices and hang it in a dark, cold corner for a few months to let it dry out and sort of congeal and then you boil it for four or five hours and throw a sauce on it and you're good.
0: <laughs> really? That's yeah. that's fi- fi- basically the genesis of figgy pudding.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'll be damned. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, a lot of it's of necessity, right? Because, again, like I said before, you'd have, you're coming on to the season of, in North America, of winter, where you have three to four months where you're not really sure you're going to survive. (laughs) Fair, yeah. You know, you have all your, you store everything that you can in larders. You kill off all, but all the animals you can, uh, leaving a couple so you can calve them or make them have babies the next year, store the meat, dry the meat and, you know, make stuff that doesn't go bad. That's why we get pies and stuff, uh, so many different pies in the Christmas season as well. Like tortiere was a way of using up ground meat and stuff because you'd cover the tortiere with a layer of jelly so no air would get into the the meat. Oh, right? and okay. then when you bake it off, you keep pouring uh, broth into the little hole you made on the crust on top so the meat wouldn't dry out. And, and anyway, because you'd bake it for like six to eight hours, unless you go down to like Dominion and buy like the homemade tortiere now for seven ninety nine and bake it for an hour and a half in the oven. (laughs)
0: That'd
1: be me if I was doing that, yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, all these great foods are out of necessity. And now we just, we take it for granted that they're available just one or two times a year. My Christmas traditions, my mom would make these, in Newfoundland, these things called snowballs. And they're basically chocolate and coconut and oatmeal cooked together with lots of sugar and butter and then Sounds rolled into make. a little ball and rolled into more coconut. Oh, and again, okay. you can get any of these ingredients any time of the year nowadays, but yeah. they only came out at Christmas.
0: Well, I've had conversations with uh, a friend of mine about this. You know, she's, uh, she's Irish living in England and she very much is very aware of the old calendar and of things like solstice and candle mass, and she's very dialed into this kind of stuff. And we've talked about this sort of sensation that some people have this kind of depression at winter This sometimes like whole body depression that seems to be more than just, you know, seasonal effective kind of thing. And she pointed out to me, she said, you know, this, this time of year is, is the time of year when if you didn't, if you hadn't prepared, you'd die. Exactly. And I don't think that fear, despite the fact that we are now living in an era where that's not a concern for, I should say in the developed world, that fear is, that's thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of years of genetic hardwiring.
1: Yes. And you have, I mean- We've got it pretty easy as a generation, as a species, right now because we've created so many things we don't need to work at. I mean, we'd have for centuries you'd burn thousands of calories a day just surviving. Yeah, and now you're lucky to burn fifteen hundred just sitting on your tuchus. Um <laughs> That's it. You gotta you gotta wait for your Fitbit to vibrate and remind you to go take a walk. <laughs> exactly. So again having enough food to last you the three months. I mean, you're not going down to the 7-Eleven to pick up your next taquito. So (laughs) (laughs) if your food runs out in February, you're up a creek.
0: That's it, yeah, unless you've got very, (laughs) very kindly
1: neighbors. So in
0: your your research and in the shows you've done so far, you've touched on things, uh, because when I think of Christmas, I tend to think along, obviously, as I mentioned, german stuff because you know that's what we sold at the store and sort of that bavarian christmas market idea has kind of become exported everywhere now but uh, i was really surprised with your episodes on say, the the melo macarona, the the greek treat or as i said uh, the malva pudding from south africa of course they have christmas but it had never occurred to me and i'm curious wh- what are some of the other uh international things that you maybe
1: have discovered along the way Uh, Well, yeah, like you said, it's easy to talk about Christmas traditions. A lot of them are Germanic in origin and, you know, the Christmas tree, the snow globe, the advent calendar, all that's German um, or German area, German Austria area. And so it's easy to kind of focus on Europe and all that stuff because it's, I mean, let's face it, they got good PR. Um, (laughs) Very true. Very true. So the Germans are not Anywhere Christendom has touched a culture there's got to be Christmas, right? So I've started exploring, like, what's Christmas like in the Philippines? What's Christmas like in South America? What's Christmas like in Africa? Because there's Christian cultures in Africa and all these other countries. And I, I mean, again, I've talked to other Christmas podcasters, and they're like, um, a gentleman from New Zealand. I'm like, oh yeah, Christmas in the summer? What the heck would that be like? Sure, yeah, you know, because they're in the Southern Hemisphere, everything is hot. So that's where my pavlova episode came from. So and the, they go to the beach, they have a barbecue and they bring out, you know, pavlova with fruit and whipped cream for Christmas, which was delicious.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, I, I had pavlova when I was in England and I was a big fan.
1: Yeah. So, sorry, what was the question?
0: <laughs> oh, no, that, that was it. Like just some of the international traditions that you've come across in your research, the things that we don't typically think about as being Christmas. So, Christmas in New Zealand, that's a great example, barbecue and pavlova.
1: It's funny because I because I live and breathe Christmas almost all the time. I got to write stuff down because I was watching a YouTube video with some woman and she was talking about lefse, which is like a Norwegian crepe that they make out of potatoes. Oh, okay. And she's like, oh, we make this during the holidays. Like, oh, idea. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I got to write that down. Um, so- Every person I talk to is a p- potential podcast idea. Of course. If I talk, yeah. Start talking about, you know, if you're Christian and you celebrate Christmas, what does your family do? And I, I mean, I can only mind my own um, history and culture long, long enough before people go, yeah, yeah, you know, you talked about that last, last time. <laughs> right. um, it's funny because I watched a, a, another video about uh, North American accents. And because I've done acting jobs and theater jobs, and right. there was a cookbook on the back of the person's bookshelf talking about Scandinavian cooking for the holidays, I'm like, "Oh, I don't know anything about that." <laughs> Another idea. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it goes back so, to that there being so many facets to this thing that, again, I, I think most people would just not not conceive of. And and having the show as a resource is wonderful because it's. One, I love Christmas. I love Christmas. Like I'm, I'm not a big gift. I don't like the gift thing, but just the yeah the music and the smells and the lights. I love that. And so, let's say, like listening to your show, it's just this very kind of soothing sonic experience because it kind of you get you can get that sort of Christmas
1: vibe whenever you want. Thank you. That's very nice to say. And that's one of the uh, one of the sort of ways I want to portray the show. I don't want to be the one saying you know. This is the facts and this is how it has to be. I want to give people at least an experience of the holiday they may not have had before and just an exposure to a different culture. And I, again, I, I think that's such a hugely valuable thing, especially since that, you know,
0: folks can be a little bit, uh, we be a little bit walled off from new experiences now. You know, it's so easy yes. to build a, a bubble around yourself. You said earlier that something tasted great. So do you
1: make the recipes as you put the shows together? I do make some of them. Most of the time it's more research, but again, I have uh, friends who are happy enough to let me try. Like I used to work in a bakery where one of the front end workers was from Chile, if I remember correctly. So she brought in a lot of her own family's foods for Christmas. Oh, cool. So yeah, that's one of the great things. And again, traveling around, we went to the UK, we've gone to the US, we've gone to Uh, Mexico and stuff. And even going to different cities in Canada and the US, there's even different cultures. You can try their foods. I mean, not as much here in Newfoundland, but you know, in Ontario, I got to try Italian panettone in the little Italian district in Toronto. Right. Right. I made a panettone bread pudding once. Oh,
0: that'd be nice. It was (laughs) solid. I, I, cause I can't eat dairy anymore, so I couldn't eat it. But I, I gave it to some, some friends and my wife and yeah, apparently it was, it was, it was tasty. I just, I love that stuff, man. There must be
1: some like vegan butter and nut milks you could use.
0: Probably. I'm also allergic to most nuts. So <laughs> oh, okay. it, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I used to love, as I said, I used to love, uh, we used to get these bars of marzipan covered in chocolate at the store Yes. and just adored them. And yeah, I know me and almonds now, uh, no longer, no longer get along. <laughs> So do you have a personal favorite, one Christmas dish that above all you think, if I had to, if you know, someone says, what do you want? You can have one Christmas treat.
1: What's yours? For nostalgia reasons, I'd, I'd go with the snowballs because that just means Christmas. And there's so many positive memories of me growing up eating them all the time. Right. But again, I'd go into diabetic shock after a while. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I hear you. You know, there's... There were times when I my mom would make literally dozens of them, and she would. They're best eaten in the cold because they're called snowballs. So she'd put them in the freezer in a little either a Tupperware container or a little metal tin, and I would you know sneak one out and rearrange them, and so they wouldn't look like they were touched. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That's just a sort of nostalgic recipe, and I think. Still sticking with my Canadian heritage. I mean, tortiere would be an amazing Christmas food all the time. But again, coronary disease. I <laughs> <laughs> eat meat pie. I, just, I would fall over. I get the meat sweats. I know them well. I know them well. <laughs> Less
0: as I get older, but yeah, no, I, I, there were days. But it's
1: funny because there was a Scandinavian one. Um, they have a thing on Christmas Eve uh, it's called, I think it's called Julborg, which is basically like a buffet that you spend all day eating. And it's just mostly vegetarian because Christmas Eve to them, it's mostly vegetarian and or fish dishes. Okay. So, so it wouldn't be as heavy. So I could live in Scandinavia for the rest of my life and be happy.
0: I mean, I think generally speaking, that statement holds true. It seems like a pretty great place. Yes. <laughs> So as we're winding down, I'm kind of curious, and I should have asked you this right at the top and I just, you know, we got, we got going right away. And so I didn't think of it, but what is it about Christmas? When did this, this kind of start for you? Obviously, Was it from a series of positive Christmases as a kid or something as an adult that kind of made you engage in Christmas stuff outside of what people normally consider Christmas time?
1: Yeah. It's not the last sort of six weeks of the year that most people concentrate on Christmas. I talked about this with Todd from Christmas Clatter and it's it's funny cuz I didn't realize it until I actually started talking to him about it. I moved around a lot with my family when I was a kid. So my dad used to work for Woolworths, which was a department store chain. He was one of the managers and so he would be sent from store to store across the province basically just to get them up to speed if they were lagging behind and just get sales okay. up and all that stuff. So every Two two years we'd move. And so they were nice, they were considerate enough to the kids that we'd move in the summertime. And so we'd have a new school year to okay. adjust. So by the time I finished high school, I had moved nine times. Wow. Yeah. And so I had learned to be sort of very introverted and very research oriented. I read a lot of books when I was a kid. But talking to Todd, I realized that Christmas meant that we were still sticking around. Right. It meant stability to me. So I didn't realize that until now. I'm like, I'm now in my fifties. I'm like, holy crap, there's like a therapy moment that I totally didn't figure out until now. <laughs> so uh, so the love of Christmas was always there. It's just I didn't make the I didn't connect the dots until just now, just recently in the last few years why right. it's so important to me and why it's so special because christmas is special for everybody for certain reasons sure but to me it's always been the permanence of a location so right <laughs> and as i've grown older it's i've appreciated sort of the nuances of all the different aspects of christmas and how it can be A religious ceremony, it could be a secular ceremony, it could be just listening to music for some people, it could be just hanging out with friends with some people, or making cookies. As someone who, who, as I mentioned, who really enjoys
0: that sort of anticipatory part of Christmas, the decorations and the lights and the music and and the, you know, this God help me the snow, even though I don't really, you know, I left Revelstoke to get away from winter, but there, (laughs) there is still something about it. But as someone who enjoys those things, I do get frustrated when I hear people rigidly define Christmas by its commercial, by like the, the, most, the, the worst version of it, the, you know, the, the least palatable, the most crass, gift-giving, you know, unpleasant industrial part of it. And yeah. it, it's, it seems so sad that they don't understand you can make that whatever you want to be. You can engage with that to whatever degree you want. You can, you can as you say, take the good parts of it and, and define it however you like. Uh, I, I know my, my friends and I, you know, I, I've been in Victoria for 15 years now and the last three years, what we've done is, um, I guess four, maybe four, three or four years is Christmas day. We just, you know, we all go see a movie together and we make some food and that's, that's it. We don't exchange gifts. We just enjoy each other's company. We have some drinks and some herbal refreshment and, and just in joy being around each other without having to think that work is going to call you away or something like that. And it's, it's frankly, it's become one of my favorite times of the year.
1: I think that's what makes it, makes this season so special. It's the traditions that you create and you create with the people that you care about that make Christmas more meaningful to you.
0: Yeah, I know. I, I absolutely. And I, so I, I encourage everyone listening, you know, check out some of the, the podcasts that Glenn has mentioned, because I think it's, it's time to, to reevaluate Christmas and to take it back from the people who would, yeah, to minimize it and make it something grudging and awful. It doesn't have to be that. And I think shows <laughs> like shows like Seasons Eatings will show you that that is the case.
1: So Glenn, where can everyone find you online? I'm found at seasonseatingspodcast.com. Um, I'm also found on Facebook. So if you search Seasons Eatings Podcast, um, also on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Seasons Eatings Pod and Seasons Eat Pod. So, yeah, everything can be found at the links to all the, all the socials on my uh, website, seasonseatingspodcast.com.
0: Brilliant. And I'll include links in the show notes to all those things, and you'll be able to connect to Seasons Eatings from there. My guest has been Glenn Warren, host of the Seasons Eatings Podcast. Glenn, thank you so much for being here, man. This has been a ton of fun.
1: Thank you very much. It's great.
0: And that's the ballgame. Don't forget to check the show notes for links to the Season's Eatings podcast. I'll also link to Glenn's website and social media. Huge thanks to Glenn Warren for taking the time and for opening my eyes not only to a bunch of great food history, but the Christmas Podcast Network as well. Thanks too to Peter of Pizzanta Music for my fabulous theme song. You can find more from him at nightharvestrecordings.com or by searching for Pizzanta Music wherever you get your tunes. And finally, thank you for listening. Without you folks, there wouldn't be much point. Until next time, I hope the night takes you to the same strange and wonderful places it takes me. And remember, if you're not sure what comes next, put a call out into the dark. You never know who's going to pick up. I'll see you next time.